Good morning. You are listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. Welcome to Sunday morning at 8.30, new time. Very exciting from my end. Um, that was Suave Connections from the dance album from Michael Benhayen and Curtis Benhayen. I'm just grooving in the studio this morning listening to that before I start my show. Welcome. We're in a new time slot. It's it's going to be a totally different show as a result. It's a show that covers health and well-being through connection to people, people in our community and people beyond who share with us their experiences, their choices and their consequences. And regardless of age, their innate wisdom. By discerning and getting a sense of what is transferable from these guests, we can choose to apply the relevant aspects in our community and develop programs that found a more sustainable, loving and heartfelt way to be with each other, thereby improving our physical and mental health. I really learned so much from every guest I have in the studio and we cover some, some pretty tough topics sometimes, tough ones to talk about. The uh, upcoming series to the end of the year, which I've, I'm just putting the final touches to, is no exception. It's going to uh, cover hopefully a lot of topics that will be important to you in the community. It will draw from experience from outside our community and within our community. And uh, all of it is applicable to how we can build for ourselves a healthier and more actively engaged in our physical, mental health and well-being. In today's show, we're going to flesh out some of the events that have happened this week. So um, I was lucky enough to attend the Boyer Lecture at the ABC with Professor Sir Michael Marmot. Um, we're going to have an interview with Tabor Morris, who is the director of Norman, who's the director of the importance of being earnest that Norman Hurst Uniting Church are putting on uh, to raise funds for the dish. And hopefully we'll have some calls because, of course, it is Father's Day. It is the day in the year that we celebrate, at least in Australia, all the fathers and say, you know, thank you very much. Um, I would like to put forward that there are many different types of fathers. Um, I know uh, way too many people who lost their fathers very young and there have been other male role models within their lives, not necessarily directly living with them who have played that part. I feel that mentors can very often give a fatherly support where there isn't a father present and sometimes where the father has um, issues going on in his life where he can't quite be the father that he wants to be. It's beautiful to have that support from the community. But I do notice that we pigeonhole are males in our society about what we think they would like and um, I would like to put forward the case that not all dads like to do DIY and not all dads need a shed to run away from the children too so if we've got any dads out there who would like to say that, that you know that they that they represent that community please feel free to call in um, the other thing I found was some dad vice I thought was pretty cool. It's funded, the, the website is funded by Movember and um, it's dads giving advice to dads. And the, the one that I looked at was all about what comes out of children when they're first born. So spew 
and poo. It was a very honest look at, you know, making sure that you're prepared to be covered in all sorts of gooey substances. Um, What I noticed is that when I was looking after my brothers, I probably was more aware of the smell than when I was looking after my own children. All of a sudden, you don't mind it quite so much. I mean, it's not pleasant, but it's not quite so bad. And I think that that's part of what happens when you become a parent is you actually stop thinking about yourself quite as much and you notice that there is more to life than necessarily all about me mentality. Anyway, moving very swiftly on. Be back in a mo. Indeed, you are listening to Stay in the Loop with Lucy on Triple H 100.1 FM. Welcome back. First up, we're going to talk about the Boyer Lecture. So I heard an interview on Radio National, the breakfast show, and they said they had 50 double passes to give away. Well, what can I say? I was at the side of the road, engine off, keys in my lap, emailing within about a minute because I was on a quiet road. My request was in. And lo and behold, two days later, I found out that I had won a double set of passes. Much to the bemusement of my family, I was, you know, fairly ecstatic jumping around the kitchen and was telling everyone how I was going to see a public health rock star give a lecture on the things in our community that have a direct impact on how we live and how long we live. So these are called the social determinants of health. That's what they are. And the public health rock star is Professor Michael Marmot. These lectures are going to be broadcast over the next month or so over the ABC Airways. So Michael Marmot is the president of the World Medical Association as well. And he talks about the major discrepancies between life expectancy rates across Australia and in other parts of the world. We have to ask, you know, how can it be that there's an 11-year gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous in terms of lifespan and a 25-year gap between some different cities in the UK and America? I mean, I have to say, I think that the 11-year gap's actually quite small. It's bigger than that in reality um, in certain parts of Australia as well. But... What his research does, and he's very scientific, he goes out, he, he's, he's studied the, the British um, civil servants and looked at what stage in the civil service they're in has a direct correlation to, how, to their health. And that's quite extraordinary. So, yes, it is related to finance, but it is equally related to where you live. So... Um, Anyone who has travelled will have seen the difference between an affluent suburb and a poor suburb. You can tell by the colour changes, you know, there are more trees and then there suddenly are fewer trees and more concrete. There are less health food shops and more fast food restaurants. Interestingly, there are fewer... uh, fewer hospitals around those areas. They're the, they're the cheaper places to live. And um, it affects your mental health. There's less jobs and, and less employment and anywhere where there is sort of good infrastructure for employment and all of those things, actually the cost of living there tends to go up. You know, that's just basic. It's, it's not something unusual. But no, no one's really talking about it. 
because we're quite focused on building the coffers to make sure that we don't end up in that space. And and a lot of our sh- a lot of my shows have been about homelessness and how, how actually easy it is to slip below the poverty line. Um, actually, this week's Q and A. Uh, covered that poverty line really well and if you do get an opportunity to watch it it's well worth watching I'll put a link to it on um, the website once I've finished editing the show I'll put that up there so that people can have a look but you know not many people actually want to be unemployed and when you're unemployed over a long period of time I mean even a short period of time it affects our mental health it affects our self-esteem and it affects our self-worth and all of those all of those things affect our physical and mental health we don't tend to value the qualities that come from the inside out really we don't champion people for who they are we tend to champion them for what they do um all hoping really not to end up in situations where we struggle to pay our bills. But what I've noticed is um, I, I love what Sir Michael Marmot is talking about. And I, and I think that as a community, what he was saying is that you can't wait for the changes to come from government. You just can't because they're, so, they're big and they've got to consult with the community to put policies in place. You know, the process of going through government, putting it into legislation takes a very long time. But we as a community can start actually changing the way we see each other as separate and, and come together and actually work and build and support each other as a community that we've really got to look at, at these, this community support. Now, community support was spoken about by Tim England with uh, dementia. And that, again, all, all of these things are starting to flow together for me. I'm, I'm seeing major illnesses come from the lack of community. As, and, and I question whether it's partly because we withdraw into ourselves because we so want to be part of a group. And we're so, we, we can be disappointed by how life has turned out that we withdraw into ourselves. And that danger of withdrawing is that we can withdraw so far that sometimes we can't get back. Worth contemplating, hey? Welcome back. I just wanted to go through that just one more time. So uh, with Sir Michael Marmot, just tell you a little bit more about what he was talking about with violence, which was quite interesting. The link between the riots. I'll read you from the review in the news on the ABC. The link between deprivation of social conditions, ill health and crime is all too obvious in Australia. He cited examples of the riots that racked Baltimore in April 2015 after the death of Freddie Gray, an African-American in police custody. The underlying cause, said Sir Michael, was inequality of social and economic conditions. I had been studying health inequalities in Baltimore before there was civil unrest. In the poor part where the riots broke out, life expectancy for men was 63 years. In the richest part, it was 83 years, he said. The link between riots and ill health is not unique to Baltimore. In summer 2011 in London, riots broke out. They started in Tottenham, in North London. Eerily, the precipitant was the killing of a black man by the police. 
As with Baltimore, the underlying cause was inequality. For men, life expectancy in the most down-at-heel part of Tottenham is 17 years shorter than the ritziest part of Kensington and Chelsea. This association between ill health and crime is no coincidence, said Sir Michael. The social conditions in which people are born, grow, live and work and age are strongly determined both of risk of ill health and of the likelihood of engaging in civil disorder. Health and inequalities in health are closely linked to the conditions in which we raise our children. The education we get, the neighbourhoods we live in, the work we do and whether we have the money to make ends meet our social relationships and our care for the elderly. That's really going before, uh, beyond the typical understanding of what causes ill health, which is smoking, drinking, poor diet and exercise. And so what Sir Michael's really um, putting forward and what all the Boyer lectures that will go out on the ABC will promote is that we have to look slightly differently at what makes us healthy and what makes us sick. And um, again, you know, that we can do something about that. We can change the trajectory for health, which when you look at the statistics for obesity, the statistics for uh, cardiovascular disease, um, it, it's enormous for cancers. They're enormous. 37%, I believe it is, of cancers are from lifestyle choices. So, you know, if, if that would stop if stopping smoking, stopping drinking, looking at what we're eating, uh, all contribute to some of those cancers and we can prevent it, then I reckon we should. I reckon we have to be the change we want to see in our life. I'm a broken record about that on, on this uh, program because I genuinely believe we shouldn't wait for someone else to come along and fix us, that we can be really active participants in our health and in the health of, of, of others around us. So they'll be broadcast over the next four weeks. Um, hopefully you will you will check them out and I'd love your feedback on them. I'll, I'll link to them on my website as well. Straight after the news, we're going to be talking to a gentleman who has decided to direct the musical production from Norman Hurst Uniting Church. It's their musical society's production, The Importance of Being Earnest. They're raising money for The Dish, which obviously we've spoken about an awful lot on this show. And we're, I'm really looking forward to, to hearing how it's gone because, you know, working in, in, uh, in a community on community musical theatre, that's fun. A lot of characters, a lot of experiences. So hopefully we can all go along to see it. I'll tell you more about where, when, when he is on the show in a few minutes. Tamer, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. How's it going? Good morning. Good morning to you. Welcome to Triple H. Uh, uh, we uh, Now, you contacted us about this um, show that you're doing, and you're doing it for free for The Dish. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So uh, Norman Hurst uh, Uniting Church Musical Society is putting on a play, um, The Importance of Being Earnest by Oscar Wilde. Um, and it was kind of decided that uh, to put it on for free pretty much for the community. And uh, we're just going to take donations at the end so you don't even have to pay at the beginning um, to uh -huh. give us how much you think it's worth. And all the money will go to the local charity of The Dish, which feeds homeless people. Now, does your, um, does your church get involved with The Dish or is this your first time that you've actually been working with them? Um, no, this isn't my first time. So the the society 
Um, generally, what it does is in a- every one of its shows, any kind of profits that it makes will automatically go to the dish. So they'll only keep money um, to just pay back their costs of you know, putting on the shows. Um, and that's kind of just been a general um, thing for the society. But because of this play, because we've actually got no cost because it falls outside of copyright, so it's kind of free to put on Oscar Wilde. Fantastic. Um, we decided to have no budget, to have no money, so then pretty much everything we make will go to the dish. Okay, so I'm going to do a quick shout-out to your cast because clearly they're giving their time free. Mm-hmm. You've got Marcus Cope-Williams playing John Worthington. Yep. Andrew McLeod playing Algernon Moncrief. Mm-hmm. Paul Meatham. I said that yep. right. Uh, playing yep, Reverend yep. Canon Tazubal, Jackie Hartley pe- playing Merriman and Lane, Cath uh, Hale playing Lady Bracknell, Charmian Fauvet playing Gwendolyn Fairfax, uh, Jessica Knight playing Cecily Cardew, and Amir, uh, Amelie Emily. Hale playing Miss Prism. That's correct. Gosh, and those names, I mean, gosh, it just throws me straight back into studying it at uh, school and uni. It was just fantastic. Do you want to give us a little bit of a snapshot of the storyline. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty much the, like, without giving too much away, so you don't... Yes, we won't do the punchline. Yeah, but uh, pretty much it's, it's about these two men, who's um, Jack and Algernon, who have created these kind of uh, fake personalities so they can get away um, from each other. So Jack creates Ernest and um, Algernon creates um, Bunbury, and they, they use these fake names and these fake identities to be able to move around and then it kind of they get caught up in this idea of who's real and who's not and which one's which and it's a kind of a mistaken identity kind of situation that occurs and it all kind of collapses in their face um, by the end it's very kind of very British uh, this way and they, they say Oscar Wilde is amazing for his wit so it's very witty and it's very kind of a lot of play on words Yes, and I noticed that a lot of people kind of get uncovered. They get their comeuppance, which, uh, of course, is equally um, funny because it's it's done in such a way that the upper class and the pomposity of that uh, yeah, comes it, crashing down, doesn't it? Yeah, to say Wilde, was, uh, even though he was part of kind of the aristocracy, did not like the aristocracy, and he kind of shows the absurdity of their kind of relationship with each other and the absurdity of their kind of their titles and so yeah it does kind of fall apart making fun of the kind of the upper class and um and the situations that they get involved in and uh so yeah so it's it's, it's very british but it's um yeah and it's it's a very interesting kind of play on what society thinks is important uh and kind of underlying the 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 funny humor that while puts in there and of course, there's an awful lot of love. Everyone's falling in love with everybody. I seem to. Remember. Oh well, yeah. You can't. You can't have a comedy <laughs> play without love. So. <laughs> that's so true. I think there's one line that I remember more than anything else, and that's. Uh, now I'm really hoping that I've got this right, but isn't it the handbag moment? Yes, there is the. Oh wow! Someone, someone knows their play quite well. Yeah, mm. there is a moment about the handbag. <laughs> Well, somewhere. Well, I suppose it might give away some of the plot, but there was just the the um, shock of someone, you know, being found in a handbag. Um, yep. Just made me giggle, and I've never forgotten the, of seeing it live and seeing someone just that the expression and the intonation. So I'm, I hope, I'm sure that your characters and the the actors and actresses in yours will equally throw um, memorable lines out there for people to remember. Oh yeah, it's, it's actually quite funny. The, mo- the every time we tell someone we're doing Oscar Wilde, the amount of lines that people quote back to us, um, saying, "Oh, I oh, remember this line," and so I've been telling my cast 
these lines are iconic. Yes. <laughs> if you throw, if you don't do them properly, everyone will be quite upset because some of these lines are absolutely iconic. That's so true, and you know, it helps when when young people have to go and remember these in exams. If you can watch a performance, it really makes such a difference to what you can remember under pressure. Yeah, and especially because these playwrights never intended their plays to be studied; they intended their plays to be watched. And so I think a lot of the lines and a lot of the humor of Wilde doesn't make sense on paper. It makes sense when you see it. Yes. Um, and so, for example, even with our cast, when they were just reading it through together, there was a lot of moments no one was laughing. The second we started doing it, they were laughing. And they go, oh, finally, I understand what that line means. Yeah. When I sat there and just did it. Um, and so, yeah, because there's a few, you know, the few local schools are putting it, like the year nine and year 10 boys are studying it. And so I emailed them saying, come make them watch it because, or we can even go to them if yeah. plays are supposed to be watched, not, not studied. So. Yes. That's very, that's fantastic. Good point. And I'm pleased local schools are studying it and they can come and see it. Yeah, that, that was one of the main reasons we picked it as well. We asked some of the local schools and some of them were like, oh, you know, we're doing, uh, the common one was Oscar Wilde. So I thought, well, we'll have to put that on and so Smart. we'll be able to assist them. Very smart move, Tamer. Now, what is your story? Do you direct all of the um, musicals that come out of the church? Uh, no. So we've got a handful of us. There's a few of us. So I, I directed the uh, the last one, which was the Two German of Rona, the musical. Um, there's currently one about to come up, which is um, uh, the annual Spelling Bee, which is directed by Tim Shelby, who's uh, another director. Um, so there's, there's a few of us around. Um, but yeah, so I'm I'm not a professional director. I'm just amateur. We all have other jobs and we all do other things. But I've, I've been obsessed with theatre and I love musical theatre and, and actual theatre. So um, yeah, so so I've directed the last one and directing this one and, and directing one again next year. So and do you um, ever find yourself on the front? Do you ever act? Um, <laughs> interestingly, the last musical we did a week before we went on air, one of my cast members got terribly ill. Um, and I had to step up <laughs> ah. and, and take his role. Um, I do sometimes act, uh, saying that I, I prefer directing. I think it's more fun creating a world from scratch than just creating a simple character. But, um, but yeah, no, I, some, I sometimes try <laughs> to get on, onto the stage if, if I can. But um, no, I, I, for me, I prefer, absolutely love directing. I think it's just just creative and it's amazing and you get to see this whole world being created then you get to see your imagination come alive on stage and yeah. you get to share that imagination with everyone so it's beautiful and do you find it a good balance between your day job and having that that interest outside not really <laughs> what do you do for your day job without um, so I'm uh, well at the moment it's easier so I, I'm, I'm, I'm a lawyer but I'm currently uh, switching to do my PhD so um it's easier now with when you're studying because yes. you can kind of study around rehearsals. But when I was working full time, it was a bit um, a little bit harder, yes. uh, especially when you you got meetings and so forth, etc. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's it, it, but like as, as I've always like believed that you know we don't we don't you know live to work we we work to live. So you have to have these hobbies outside of work. Absolutely. And um, how what are your cast like? Um, so the majority of our cast. Is uh, like so. We've got handbook. Actually, have half half are working and half are stu uh, students. Um, so the working people are finding it a bit easier because rehearsals are at night. The students aren't finding it a bit easier because it's exam period. Ah, uh, oh, <laughs> bless. 
<laughs> and so they're all stressing out about their exams right yes. now and their assessments. Um, and uh, yeah, but it's it's it, I, I appreciate these guys because most of these guys were also in the musical last. And so literally we stopped the musical and I said, hey, I've got this idea. Let's put on this play for free so we can give back to the community. And they were all 100% for it and, and they all did it. So it was, it's actually amazing that they're giving up so much of their time. Oh, wonderful. Thank you, Tamer. Thank you to the cast. Uh, I know that the dish will appreciate the uh, the funds coming into their coffers. Now, um, your show is on this coming Saturday, the 10th, so a week, week pretty much. Mm-hmm. And then the 24th of September, and you've got two shows on each day at 2 and 7.30. Is that correct? That's correct. Wonderful. Now, seating is unreserved and a first-come, first-served basis, guys, so don't hold back. Um, so they don't even need to book. They just turn up. Yeah, exactly. They just rock up and, and we'll hopefully have enough seats for every single person that turns up. It's very much the Australian way to not commit and then just suddenly go spontaneously. Yeah, I'm going to do that now. Exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm English, so I'm like, okay, are we booking? How far out can we book? Can we make sure that, you know, we know exactly where we're going? Very funny. Thank you so much, Tamer. Um, no I hope it goes very well. Please make sure you come back for the spelling bee uh, or your your teammates and, and tell us about that as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Bye. There you go, listeners. Um, well worth getting along to that. That is next Saturday night. You've got two shows, a 2 o'clock and a 7.30. So if you really like to go to bed early, you can um, uh, you can come to the 2 o'clock and otherwise go to the 7.30. Unreserved seating, so make sure you get there nice and early. I'm sure there will be some very memorable events from that. Welcome back. First up for the week, what's been happening? We can't really go past the fact that it was the first week back for Parliament and it all went chaotically wrong. <laughs> they normally, I guess we have to set the scene, don't we? They normally only sit for four days a week. So Thursday in Parliament is a little like Friday for our federal politicians. Now, the trouble was that Labour realised that a few of the coalition members had gone home early and pounced on the rare opportunity to have the numbers advantage because obviously there's not that much difference between, you know, who has the balance of power. Well, um, whoops, they started putting in, you know, papers to vote on and, uh, well, the coalition desperately tried to find everyone to get them to turn around and come back one of the uh, one of the i think it was justice minister michael keaton uh, keenan was already on a plane and he was going to victoria and he just had to turn around and come back um well chaos anyway i'm afraid they got an awful lot of uh stick in the house and in the media and I don't think they'll, they'll live that down. But watching Malcolm Turnbull and Christopher Pine's faces when they lost uh, two divisions in the house, I mean, man, they were panicking. It was quite entertaining to watch. Anyway, that's by the by. Before the election, this is a bit of a, a follow-on. It, it, it caught my attention because it was a father who wrote the letter. Before the election, Malcolm Turnbull's pre-election promise was that we would have a plebiscite for same-sex marriage followed by a parliamentary vote. But two days into the new parliament, I think everyone's a bit confused because there seems to be a turnaround around the vote. 
I know it's confusing, even more so probably because the number of confusing words I'm using in this section and saying the word confusing so often. Uh, perhaps we should start with what a plebiscite is. It is a direct vote of all the members of the electorate on an important public question. However, it's just that. It's a national vote, a yes or no, with regards, you know, a particular topic. It doesn't amend the Constitution. Uh, no, to amend the Constitution would need a referendum. It, all it does is it gives the government a gauge of how the people feel. And the price tag for that survey, that very fancy survey, is $160 million. Now, it's compulsory. You can imagine how much it costs to do a general election. Well, we'd be doing that for one question. Um, the only way a national vote can change the constitution, obviously, is a referendum. And we had that. An example of that, a recent example, was Brexit. Yes, tumbleweed moment. So is a plebiscite or a national referendum the only option? Could we, just putting it out there... Could we use the parliament that we elected, yes, as higgledy-piggledy as it is, not have a conscience vote where, the vote, where they vote according to their electorate majority? So they represent their majority, their, the majority view of their electorate in parliament, which I believe is actually what they're supposed to do. Um, well, this article by Mick Kiriaku, which was on the Sydney Morning Herald online, is the father of a woman in a same-sex relationship who joins the debate and, and says it's very personal. He, to quote from the article, I do not want to see my daughter or any other person fight against the feelings you get when you are openly told you're not good enough, you're not equal, you're not one of us. But that's exactly what a plebiscite debate will do. And the letter goes on. This Father's Day... Look into your heart. Make the honest and fair decision. Find the gumption to stand up to your party and ask for a conscience vote. Stare down the fear and innuendo used to hold decent people to ransom because they love each other. Same-sex couples are not taking from our community. They are part of our community and part of our families. They are you and me. I believe when two people love each other and want to be with each other, we should give them that right. Don't pull people apart and place restrictions on love. Don't ask this country and don't ask same-sex couples to fight to be who they are. This Father's Day, I want to see you show leadership. Bring on a conscious vote on marriage equality. There we go. That can be found in the Sydney Morning Herald. It was published yesterday morning. Yesterday morning. Yeah. And it, it really makes... I, I mean, I... I believe that we elected our parliamentarians to to represent us and I think we have to get engaged with the parliament the people who represent us in our local area know who your know who your representatives are speak to them get them to represent you let them know what you feel because very often they're very keen to engage with us as a community they just don't they, you know we might just not engage with them so um Let's go to some community service announcements now and I will come back with another something that completely confused me in the uh, in the news today. A clearly 
I've been a bit befuddled this week by everything that has been going on that just doesn't make logical sense to me. You're listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. They're going to start changing or looking about whether or not they're going to change the lockout laws. Uh, so I started looking at the footprint for the lockout laws and I, I was at the Human Rights Commission. Professor Gordian Fulda was just made Senior Australian of the Year and he did a rights talk, which actually can still be found online. That talk, he was telling us that he took so much abuse when he spoke out about the fact that at his hospital, he had seen a marked reduction in presentations since the lockout laws had gone in place. But because people wanted those lockout laws changed, they were furious that they had been put into effect. Um, He'd taken a lot of abuse for it. And that really stunned me. Um, Then I read one of his papers, and I'm just going to quote a little bit to you. It was found that drinking a glass of wine doubled the risk of presentation to an emergency department after uh, after three glasses, there was a fivefold increase. The same study found that after 10 standard drinks, the risk of needing to attend an emergency department was increased tenfold for men and 14-fold for women. Um, then on February the 14th, 2014, the New South Wales government introduced changes to liquor regulations in the central district of the city of Sydney, the so-called party uh, precinct. Now, there was obviously community outrage and a series of adverse events reported in the media, particularly around the deaths of, um, of, the, of the two young men associated with alcohol-fueled violence. And really, that, um, the legislation was enacted because of that community outrage. And it's amazing, actually, and really desperately sad that it takes something so horrific to make us listen to the people who are on the front line you know the police and the medicine the the medics about what goes on actually within their within their work and day to day the conclusion of this study which again i will put up for people to see on the website afterwards was that there was a significant reduction in the number of alcohol related serious injury and trauma presentations to the emergency department in the 12 months after the introduction of the new liquor regulations this change has um, was seen throughout the week but especially marked at weekends now when i looked at the map to see you know how much of the city of sydney was covered and i started looking into this i noticed that um, there was a gap on the map, like just a little bit of this peninsula that wasn't included, and it's Barangaroo. Now, I I just didn't understand the logic of that, so I started doing some further research online, and I found that the casino is exempt from that restriction. Not only that restriction, but also the smoking restriction. So that was, uh, again, I sat there kind of not really understanding quite why. Now, when you look at the statistics for the alcohol-related assaults going down, there's one area where they're not going down. And that is the star casino the number of assaults coming out because it's outside the lockout area 
In the 12 months from April 2013 to March 2014, there were 20 assaults recorded. And for April 2014 to March 2015, there were 74. Now, I can't help feeling that a lot of the the aggression that was going somewhere else, you know, that's gone down because they're still able to drink after hours somewhere else, it's it's showing up there. So I would I just don't understand how, you know, that those who have done the deal with Barangaroo are not seeing the same problem and not questioning why we have these high profile areas exempt from what is appropriate for everybody else. I mean, there were a lot of high profile closures of bars and clubs in Kings Cross and on Oxford Street. And, you know, they were directly as a result of the lockout laws and they said to be really angry. So I'm just very confused and I'm, I'm hoping that someone else is confused about it um, because Barangaroo looks to be getting special treatment. Not only that, but it seems that they are also outside the tobacco ban for smoking indoors. So just to, I mean, you may all be across this. I don't know. I certainly wasn't. This is an article from 2013 by Simon Chapman and quoting, It is now official that the casino at Bangaroo will be open slather for smoking. Casino patrons and staff will enter a public health TARDIS and travel back to the 1980s when Australian workplaces last fully allowed smoking. Like, go figure. The World Health Organization has a legally binding framework convention on tobacco control. Australia signed up to that. Second-hand smoke in indoor areas both causes and exacerbates serious respiratory and cardiovascular disease and lung cancer. We were the first, New South Wales government was the first, one of the first, to ban smoking in the 1980s. I, I just, I actually just don't understand it. But the uh, what has come from it... Um, <laughs> this article is just so funny. I'm going to have to quote from him again. Simon Chapman says, I then explained, I think he's talking to some of his students at this point. Yeah. I then I then explained that the New South government, government can only have obtained secret scientific information that has so far suppressed, um, showing that when very wealthy people smoke, their smoke is harmless to others. Perhaps the very wealthy have such highly involved airways or such evolved airway, airway have such highly evolved airways or buy such advanced cigarettes that the side stream and the exhaled mainstream smoke they exude into casinos is totally harmless. Apparently, industrial strength ventilation equipment will be installed that will push all the nasty stuff out of the air. Um, now, that tactic was a tobacco industry favourite in the years leading up to the eventual ban on smoking in pubs, and it was abandoned when it was revealed that such ventilation would need to be so powerful that it would suck the beer out of a glass. I'll put this article up. I really like the title. It says, How Santa and the Tooth Fairy Collaborated to Allow Smoking at Barangaroo. You are listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy. What else is going on? I am really aware that um, we're in September with the start of spring. Um, it always makes me 
feel like uh, clearing out uh, clearing out the cobwebs of the house, of my body, of my thought process, really starting to get active again. Let's take this across, you know, all different areas of our life. It's also Dementia Awareness Month. So, you know, we could apply that logic both ways, couldn't we? By clearing out, by getting ourselves re-engaged in... You know, maybe it's picking up the phone and talking to a friend that you haven't spoken to in a while, checking if someone's okay. You know, bring Are You Okay Day to every day of the year. Not always a text, maybe a phone call, then maybe some texts, you know, mix it up. Uh, the, the connection that we look for in a community with each other is incredibly valuable. It's, it's far deeper and the, the the pain of not having those relationships runs a lot deeper than I think I have realized until being away from the UK and a lot of my family and realizing the importance of staying in touch and how you know not seeing my mother for so long and the importance of the connection with her and how much she likes us to be in touch with her because there are days where perhaps she doesn't talk to anybody else. So just being aware of those people within our community and just touching base, saying hi, getting to know your neighbours, getting to, um, you know, getting to know people that maybe you've lost touch with a, a while back. I will post the Dementia Aware, um, the Up Close and Personal program that I did with Tim England on dementia. And I'll post that this week as well, just as a reminder, so it's fresh what else is coming up? Um, October, Alcohol Awareness Month. That's always worth doing. Sometimes I'll follow someone for the whole of September on how they feel in their body. Bearing in mind, we were talking about what the World Health Organization says about um, alcohol and um, how, you know, ultimately, um, Gordian Fulder also says, you know, you've got to think just one drink has an effect on our body. It's not about abstinence for the rest of your life if that's not what you choose. But it is about becoming aware of the effect it has, the the role it plays in our lives perhaps. Perhaps we're unaware because it's such a normal part that we don't know if we enjoy it, we want it or we need it. And sometimes taking a month off, particularly in spring, gives our bodies an opportunity to rebalance, to reboot and say, hmm, do I want it? Do I need it? You know, which one or do I just enjoy it? Now, the other thing that is coming up, it, we, next week we've got Women's Health Week. Very important for us to actually have a think about what Women's Health Week represents for us. Um, when I come back, I'll tell you a little bit about the events for next week and also what we've got coming up for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. You've been listening to Triple H 100.1 FM and stay in the loop with Lucy.